to begin, to begin how to start. All right, and action. What's my destiny, Mom? I'm somehow involved in some sort of story. Like I'm a character in my own life. I need someone to show me my place in all this. Who am I? You are capable of amazing things. your story. Good morning. Listen to me, you Utes. You need to go to this camp. This is going to be an amazing camp. It has all the potential to change your whole life. And I'll just, you know what, I'll warn you. No, it's more of a threat. If you don't fill up this camp, I'm going to have adults come. Because this is going to be a, such a great camp. You want to go to a camp where we look like this, where we're pretending to be like kids in the school, and like, hello, hey, hey, hello, fellow children. Because if I could go to this camp, I would go to this camp. And I'll tell you why in just a few seconds, but just part of the announcement part. Today is the last day uh, to sign up with the... Uh, Fun fair saver pack thing, whatever it is, uh, discount, what's it called? Early registration, okay? Midnight tonight. Midnight tonight is the last time to sign up and get the early registration. But here's, let's go back. Here's why this camp has the power of life change, because it's going to be looking at and living out in a true story the passages we're going to look at this week and next week. They're the implications and the applications of Psalm 8 and Psalm 139. Psalm 138 or 139 and Psalm 8 and the camp that they'll be going through, it's, it's going to be finding your place in the world, finding your identity, what your part is in a great story that God has for you and how to play that story out in a way that makes the most of your existence in the glory of God. I was so overwhelmed by the, the depth and impact and potential life change of Psalm 8 and 139 uh, is supposed to do them both this week that on Friday night, very late, and I never changed that late in the game for me. I just said, I'm, I'm just going to do two weeks. We're going to look at Psalm 8 this week. We'll look at Psalm 139 this week. If it's not so good this week, come back. It'll be better next week. So there's that. What we're doing <clears throat> this, this summer is we're trying to make the very most of our Psalms. Psalms help us remember. We have different things to remember about ourselves, about God, about life. And we're trying to make the most of that. We want to bring our children into it. We have a summer family challenge thing. If you uh, haven't picked one of those up, they're in the two children's buildings. And each week we're going to work our way and memorize as a church Psalm 23. So we can tear that out of our bulletin and we're going to memorize this and we're going to meditate on this. We're going to find ourselves mumbling about these passages throughout the week because meditation means to think intensely furiously, right, with purpose. 
It's not just memorizing. It's pressing and reflecting and analyzing what do these words mean. Every word has been chosen by God. Why does it say, he makes me lie down? What does that mean? How does he do that? And how, how, how many ways has he done that in my life? How does he make me lie down? And so we find ourselves mumbling back to God as we're driving to or from some situation or our devotional time. What does this mean? What does this say about God? Is this a promise for me? Is this a, 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 you know, a, an example to follow? Is this a promise to cling to? We're going to go through as a church, do Psalm 23 together. The last two weeks we'll be studying it, but we're going to be meditating on it. The idea is we're trying to open up the pathway, little pathway, right, between our head and our heart, and we're trying to make it a freeway. So there's e easy access between the way we think and the way we choose to live our lives in our soul, and then back again, our thinking and, and our heart and our mind are interconnected in a great way. That's what we're doing. This week we're looking at Psalm 8. Each and every soul, it's the human need to, to know that you are special in the mind of someone else. We need to know that someone is thinking of us, that we would be missed, that we're endearing to, to someone else. And Psalm 8 and Psalm 139 declare this to be true, that Yahweh, that Yahweh is mindful of you, that you are precious, that you are valued, that you are magnificent. His thoughts are on us. That's what these passages say. We are in the heart and the mind of Jehovah. Tim Keller's a famous retired pastor from New York City, and his best friend in uh, his early professional years was this, a man named Bruce, and he was a child psychologist. He'd been doing it for decades. And Keller tells a story about a small school in central Pennsylvania that had a, a, a child that was incontrollable in their school. And what would happen is if anyone would take their eyes off this little seven-year-old, he would, he would just run for it. And he, he would just keep running. He, he would run out of the classroom and run out the hallway and out the door and cross the parking lot. And just he would just keep running. The second you took your eyes off him, it was just like, it was Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest, run. And if you ever took your eyes off him at any time during the day, whether it's in the cafeteria or on the playground or in the classroom itself, there he goes. He's out the door, down the hallway, across the parking lot and still running. And someone would always have to, you know, everybody's lives would be changed up and they'd have to go fetch Forrest and, and bring him back in. And the school teachers and the principal and the, even the parents were extremely frustrated. So they brought in Tim Keller's friend, Bruce, and they said, what do we do? So he interviewed the student, he interviewed the parents, he interviewed the teacher, and then had a meeting with the principal and the teacher. And he said, I have an idea. Try this. Let him go. Just let him run and just continue the day as though nothing happened. Let's just try that. Next morning, started school. All our eyes are on forest. They take their eyes off before 9 o'clock. Out the door, down the hallway, through the doors, across the parking lot, and he's off. And 10 minutes later, he came back sat at his desk, and never left again. 
So Tim asked his friend, what was that all about? He said, we all need to be noticed. We are all so desperate to matter. And if we can't get good attention, we'll take bad attention. That's what was wrong. He just needed to be on someone's mind, and that's how he chose to do it. We need to know that we're on someone's mind. We need to have someone that would think of us, that would ponder about us, that would, if we went missing for a time, we would be missed. Our souls need this. There's nothing more characteristic of the modern experience than this this quest for value and self-esteem. There's there's never in history been more written on it. There's never been a more desperate time of looking for our identity. And Psalm 8 and Psalm 139 are the only destination that you can come to that brings rock-solid, truth-filled, life-changing answers to the question of who am I and am I valued? That's, that's what these psalms are about. And so Psalm 8 begins with God saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And so one, uh, verse 1 and 3 and 4 says, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have set in place, We'll pick it up in a minute, but the idea is, do you know, God is saying, do you know who is Yahweh? I am. He uses this, look at the titles, he uses this formal name, we know him by name. And then this title, and the title that he's using here is the sovereign ruler, the master of the universe that he created. So that's how it starts off, and it says, when I consider um, the works of your fingers... And it's interesting that he does not say the works of your arm or the works of your hand. Uh, Genius scholar Jonathan Edwards uh, from years ago said, do you understand the the choice of that word fingers? Do you know what it means? you understand the deeper understanding? It means that God is an artist. He's, He's using his fingers. That's how we create things. That's, he's, he's working, a, a, like creating a model. An artist does art because he delights in beauty. And, and so the author here, according to Edwards, is saying he's, he's using this word particularly his fingers because he is just, he's bringing this out as an expression of art. And every great piece of art shows the inner heart of the artist, doesn't it? For good or for bad. You look at art and you can see the soul of a person in that. And what happens when we look at the stars, when we look up, when we look at God's handiwork and craftsmanship? Stargazing, I think, is one of God's favorite ways of winning arguments with people uh, that have great doubts. It's throughout the Bible. We sh- <laughs> our, our problem in our culture is that we don't see the stars because of light pollution. And, and it's this pervasive evidence that he is a great and masterful God. It, it takes, you know, he makes a promise to Abraham when he's 75 and then 85 and then 99 that he'd have an heir. And in, in those times, he doesn't have an heir. And so in one of the encounters, he just says, well, you know what? Here's the problem. We're talking inside this tent. Come outside and look at the stars. Just look up and gaze. Now. 
You think I can bring you an heir? Yeah. I like your finger painting. The cosmos is his finger painting. I'll bet Abraham slept outside that tent for most of those 25 years, going to sleep, gazing at the stars. Do you know who I am? The second section is asking, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And I'll tell you, when you can find yourself with with David, when you're gazing up and looking at the Milky Way, you can find yourself feeling like you're not worth very much. In the glory of all creation, we would conclude that we're worthless and insignificant and extremely forgettable. And yet that is not what's true. Here's what he says. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which are set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? In the vastness of creation, <laughs> earth is like less than a speck of dust. We... we uh, We orbit a sun that is one in 100 billion stars in just our galaxy. And I'm not sure we even know how many other galaxies there are. And it says, but God is mindful. He says the word mindful of us. He has given us purpose and will and gifts. Mindful means to to purposefully recall is what that means. It it means it's, it's when your mind seeks out to remember, right? Not, not just a, a glancing thought, in other words, that you're, you're passively a, a victim of a thought that comes to your head. But in my experience, I have uh, two of my children are living in different states now. And so I purposely am mindful of them. I go and seek out um, photographs of them, memories that we have together, because I want to scroll these, through these things because they are extremely valuable to me. I care for them, and I want to remember them. That's what it means to be mindful. And then he says, not just that you're mindful of us, that you would care for man, the son of man, that you would care for him. Now, this word care, it's important us to understand the greater meaning of this uh, in, in the Hebrew because it is far, the Hebrew word is far more aggressive. Uh, it's more action uh, driven, it, it's uh, it, it's almost you know kind of like physical. It, it means to to hunt for. It means to seek out. It means to long for. Okay. It it means that you are emotionally so desirous of a person. It affects you physically. Okay, so um, you, you, you might have been through this. You, you, you have an old friend come visit you or maybe a family member that has gone on a trip and you're picking them up at the airport. Either way, the, the idea is you're quite fond of this person and, and you go to the airport and this is, this is uh, that you would care for them. And so when you pull in and you're going to pick them up outside right in front of baggage claim, right? And so you're going to flash your lights. You're going to have your head over the steering wheel, right? You're looking for them. You're caring for them. You, you want to see them in that crowd. That's not what this word means. Okay, this word, uh, let's, so you park, okay, in short-term parking. You, you come down into the airport, and you're standing at the bottom, right? People come off of the second floor, and they've got a little balcony there, and you've got your sign, right? You can't wait to see them. And you see you're just waiting, and each person, they're coming over, and there's always a crowd that's coming over. You're, like, you're looking, you're looking, waiting to hold that sign up, shout their name. That's not what this word means. 
This word means parking in short-term parking, going in baggage claim, walking up the stairs the wrong way with a stampede of people coming down. Standing on that little platform up there at Austin Bergstrom, right? That you're not supposed to be there. There's two guards watching you. What are you doing here? Why are you here? And you're watching people come from both sides of the airport as they come into that funnel, and you're jumping. You're looking. You're trying to see that person. Has anyone ever done that for someone they loved? I know I have. God has. God has for you. That's what it means when it says caring, that you would care for him. And I ask you this. Can you imagine that Yahweh would jump for you? And if you can't, you're wrong. That he would be mindful of you, that he would care for you. He goes to the galaxies. He finds the Milky Way. He sorts through the planets. He sees ours. He goes to the continents, the cities, the neighborhoods. And there you are. That he would care for you. To be known and to be loved is the heart's greatest desire. And sometimes we might experience that with another human being in this life. This passage says with Yahweh, it's a promise. It's a promise. Look what it says in verse 5. It keeps getting better. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. This is, this is uh, and, oh, I'm sorry, and I'm supposed to go to the next verse. Uh, uh, you made him, how did you crown, you crown him with glory and honor? And you made him the ruler over the works of your hands, all the flocks uh, and the herds and all the beasts of the fields and the birds in the air and the fish in the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. You put everything under his feet. This is David's restatement of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where it's talking about the nature of man and when he was created. And when he was created, he was created in the very image of God. And so the idea here is, is that, that, that Yahweh, being mindful of us and caring for us, the way he applies this is he, he stamps us with his image. And, and if you look carefully at these words, these are profound words that we, would, that we would be escorted in and he would crown. It says he crowns us with glory and honor and dominion. Those are powerful words he's crowning us with. Glory, honor, dominion, the, the, the ability to rule, those are all attributes of God is the point. He is making us like in his image, these three words. We're, we're, God has made us in his image. That means we are rational and moral and personal and e eternal. These things that God is, we're like him in those ways. And, and every human being has that attribute, has that in the image of Godness, and has infinite value and wealth. God cares about every human being. He cares how we treat every human being as every human being is in the image of God. And being in the image of Yahweh, it's a, there's a difference in man, and the difference it makes is infinite. There's, there's, there's not a difference in degree between us and other elements of creation or other animals or mammals. There's a difference in kind. 
not in degree. It's that we are a different kind of creation. We're rational like God. We need, we hunger knowledge. We, we just like to know for knowing's sake. We have to know for knowing's sake. It's personal. We have to love. We hunger for love and to be loved because we're in his image. We are eternal. We ponder. We uh, death. We want to live. We, we, we hate death. We acknowledge death. Uh, Pascal said it, uh, man is just a reed, but he's a thinking reed. And he ponders his own existence and fears death. We want to be eternal. We are creative. We hunger beauty. And we want to take chaos and make it orderly and pretty for pretty sake. We're, we're, let's, let's talk about this creativity thing. We, we create. Human beings have the power to create eternal beings. That's why sex is so sacred. It's not like animals. This is human. And the elements of fertilization, independent of each other, are not of great value. Their value is in their potential because once they collide with each other, everything changes at the moment of conception. That is now human. In the image of God. And he cares for and loves and honors and crowns with dominion that little zygote. We create art. And your, and your, your four-year-old child, grandchild, your old drawings that were hanging on a refrigerator are greater in expressions of beauty and the nature of God in you than the greatest work of the most intelligent animal that has ever lived. We create music. We, we don't like noise. We put it in order and we celebrate it. We create language and writing and we use that and have used that to civilize the entire world. We create numbers so that we might better understand the created order that God set up. In summary, there might be uh, genetic or similarities between man and other animals, but it is a different in kind, not in degree. In a bazillion years, there's no strain of a monkey that's going to find itself pondering the true nature of the human self that is spiritual and then physical. You'll never see in a billion years them being compelled <laughs> to build shrines or pyramids or something as an expression of worship because there's an acknowledgement that there is a spiritual divine being and it must be honored. That's not what they do. It can't happen. There will never be a dolphin that just decorates for the sake of beauty. Man does that because we have a crown of glory and honor and dominion. We have this place uh, in, the, in, the, in the idea of dominion, the other attributes and those expressions of how we're uh, sharing in the attributes of God. There is no place that shows up greater than the place of you. we've been giving, given the authority and the delegation to rule all of creation. We are like God when we rule with love, when we, when we tame creation with grace. I mean, friends, think through this. 
every bridge, no matter how crude or how complex it is, is a sovereign act that says this, this body of water will not tame me. I will tame it. I will go where I want to go, and I will transcend this part of creation because I am in the image of God. Every cave, no matter how crude or how sophisticated, is an expression of man being like God. It says, no, 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 I will not go around and I will not go over. I will go through because I can. I've been given permission, and it shows what I can do as I am in the image of God. That's what we do as mankind. We, we tame and we ride the beasts. We, we invent a bicycle so that we can ride that. We invent a car so we can drive faster still. We fly. Humans fly because we wanted to, because we have the ability to rule even the skies. We flew a car to the moon and left it there to show all the rest of creation that man is different in kind, not in degree, that man is different and, and shows its likeness of God to do such things. We worship God when we do these sorts of things. Man is different. Man is honored by God with glory and dominion. We are crowned. That, we have a couple of applications for that, for that fundamental truth. And let me tell you, there's two applications that I could, there are probably more, but one is that in that place, right, over animals and under the heavenly beings, we're kind of trapped. There is nothing like this. Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr talks of this, and Malcolm Muckridge and Augustine and Pascal, that we're somewhere between the, you know, the apes and the angels. And there's nothing else like us. There's nothing that we can like share or compare with. We're, uh, we're kind of a little bit like a mouse and we're a little bit like a maker. But we're not really like either of them. And so we're stuck in between the apes and the angels. And the temptations, listen to me, the temptation in this difficult place in between the angels and the apes our temptations are to push us up and to become like a god or to put or just slide down. Niebuhr says we're on a pole, you know, a mast of a ship, and we want to crawl up to the crow's nest and be like a god, or we want to just fall down and be at the, in the, in the, with the vile beasts and act like them. And the purpose of human, in a lot of ethics and morality is based on this. Know your place. Stay in that place. Don't, don't go there. Temptation happens. When panic comes about us, what do we do? Some of us, it's a, for, a, a version maybe of fight or flight. You want to say this in a, in a greater understanding of who we are. We climb up the mast and we say, okay, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm going to take over. I'm going to do things the way I want to do things. I'll write the rules. I'll write the rules. In other words, what would a God do? And that's how we sin against our nature. Other times we find ourselves in temptation or in a panic and we just want to be just lazy and we slide down the pole and we just say, yeah, but what would Fido do? 
I just want to feel good again. I deserve a break. I want to tease and titillate and enjoy the beastly desires that I have. That's what it means to be tempted, is to go against the way we're designed in the image of God, a little lower than angels, but above all of creation. Malcolm Muggridge puts it this way quite cleverly. He says, when anxiety is conceived, it brings forth both pride and sensuality. It's a drive for power. It is a drive for pleasure. It is a clenched fist. It is a phallus. We want to be Hitler or Hugh Hefner. The point is, is when you're tempted, don't go up, don't go down. Know your place. Be human in that. The second, I think, application for this is understanding the fullness of who we are in the image of God with attributes of God and how we're different completely in kind rather than degree helps us understand a greater depth of sorrow and that maybe the reason for a greater depth of sorrow because we know that things are not the way they were meant to be. So it's really just a formula. The greater the potential of, of, of greatness, then the greater the loss. And the greater the loss, the deeper and the more profound the sorrow. The greater the potential, the greater the loss, and that, that leads to a greater experience of sorrow and grief. Let me try to explain. When a, a child is born and he's handicapped or she is very spe is special needs, it's, this child is still a precious image bearer of, of Yahweh. And yet, and yet, harnessed and unable to be creative, can't rule. It can't even rule sometimes their own bodies. And there's this, this terrible grief because of the potential of what she or he was supposed to be. And so you, if you're a parent in that experience or, or have loved ones like that, oh, yeah, your grief is real. And it won't go away. And you, 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 you groan and you long for this day of redemption just like Yahweh because you're in his image. Sometimes on the other side, um, when you're um, parents, some people, as you get older, you, you start having family members sometimes or a friend. And, and I think dementia and Alzheimer's show the power of their cruelty in the context of what we're learning here as, as it applies to the nature of man being in the image of God. And so you, you find yourself not just saying, I'm, I'm losing my father in this disease. You find yourself seeing that you're, you're, you're seeing him lose his humanity. And it's such a terrible loss. And you know the potential of what already has been in this person's life. And now you see because of the greater potential, you see this greater loss and you see this greater grief. And that grief is honest, good, yeah. And you groan for the day of redemption, just like Yahweh, because you're in his image. There's a special kind of, of grief that happens when a human life is lost before it's even born. And it takes a, a, a deeper and a greater sense of truth and love to endure that. So a, a, a stillborn, 
a miscarriage, an abortion. These are the law. This is, this is the loss of a human life. It, it is a loss of something of infinite value. And, and so because of that, this is not a common grief. This is not something that people can recover from immediately or quickly or ignorantly. And sometimes we carelessly say things that are, are not appropriate because we don't bring in this understanding, especially men towards women, I find. They don't understand the fullness of what this child before it was born ever meant or ever was. And so I would say if that's your experience in any of those cases, I would suggest that you do something to find this greater depth of grief and groaning. We have a thing called a ministry called Grief Share where they, well, you can talk about those things. We have a ministry uh, for uh, ladies and men, but mostly ladies that have uh, had abortions, and it's called Forgiven and Set Free. It's an amazing ministry. Listen to the title, Forgiven and Set Free. Because what really happened doesn't go away if you try to keep it quiet. Shame only has power when it's kept a secret. And it's led by a wonderful lady who has been down that road and has been forgiven and set free. If that's your experience, I would love for you to consider going on our website. There's a little thing there that says uh, contact a pastor and just type in their uh, women's minister. And our women's, our women's minister will contact you about being in a study where women can talk about the nature of God that was lost in a foolish decision that you'd want to undo. Would you consider that? This is, this is what it means to be human in the fullness of humanity. Consequences of great loss. This crowning honor and glory and dominion. Do you know who you are? Or do you know who God is? Do you know who you are? And finally, the last punchline in this thing is, do you, know, do you know your value in the image of God? The, the, the passage is not about uh, divine authority, the greatness of God. The passage really isn't about the insignificance of man in contrast to that. This passage is about the divine grace that God, by his grace, just bestows on us this value to be in his image and to give us empowerment. This biblical identity is rock solid, it is objective, it is life-changing. Because this passage declares this, that you and I have infinite value, that we are cosmically endured by Yahweh, the maker of all things. He said so. That should be enough. But then he proved it. If there's a story about humanity, it could be that we've been held hostage, human taken. We were taken hostage by our own sin. And so I mean, think of it in the context of, of a ransom theory of redemption. We've been taken and held hostage. And God says, what will it cost to set them free? I, there's nothing that you could pay for that. How about we trade hostages? I'll... What, what would you trade for man? Your son, your only son. 
the one that you love? And he said, yes. I value man that much. He didn't send his son to die for anyone else, anything else. He sent his son for us because we were worth it, because we were valued by him. That's, that's what it means. So remember this. This is what you're supposed to remember from Psalm 8. Okay? The only way that you'll have real personal value is by believing that these things are true, that God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, has crowned us with honor and glory and bestowed upon us the right to rule dominion. And that's why the psalm ends with verse 9, the way it started, O Yahweh, our Lord, that's a title, master of all things, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Identity and value. Wouldn't it be great if we were just in the mind of someone that, that, that someone wouldn't be endeared by us? This passage says, oh, we are in the mind of God, the only mind that matters. We are in the heart of Yahweh. We are, we are the works of his fingers. We are God's art. How does an artist look at his art? He steps back, she steps back and says, they, they gaze at it. They, they put their heart into what they have done. They, they, want, they, they see that it has great value to them. If it, if it has value to no one else, an artist doesn't care. God doesn't care what any other created thing thinks about mankind. God says, I value that infinitely. So could, if you can imagine the conversation God must have with us sometimes, all that self-condemnation, you are interrupting him. You're interrupting God's perpetual message that we have infinite wealth and value, that, we, that he cares for us, that he would search us out. And maybe we should just stop interrupting and maybe go outside and gaze at the stars and look up and hear what he's saying in a whisper or a shout. There is me, and then there are angels, and there is you who rule everything else. And I have come over to you, and I have crowned you with my glory. I've given you a little of that with my honor. I am mindful of you. I jump when I see you. That's where value is. Because he said so. Because he proved it. Is that enough? And all God's people said, Amen. That's enough. Lord Jesus, that you would come and die for us is certainly a description of the Father's love and your sacrifice, but it also says a lot about how you value us. Lord, I'd ask that we would remember this, that we would remember our value comes from your declaration and your proof. And it, I, think, I think we don't want to believe these things to be true because we maybe know who we are. 
and how great you are. But Lord, I'd ask that we would stop with the arguing and take every thought captive and begin to believe and trust that as a man, as a woman, we're like you. You made us like you. Let us express these attributes of creativity and and intimacy and dominion in ways that give you glory. Lord, I'd ask that you would convince us of these truths. Help us remember them and believe them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.